Thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. And uh, it's great to see the uh, students uh, sing and play and give the testimony. It's fantastic. Um, some of these students um, I just kind of met for just the last, in the last fall. I taught them an Old Testament survey class. Uh, the year before, uh, Josiah and a few of them, I didn't meet them except they were uh, online and we weren't teaching live. And so it was interesting. I was with the, with the students a couple of weeks ago in another church and frankly, I was meeting them for the first time after having taught them. So it was really kind of fun. So appreciate um, the students coming and, uh, and serving and ministering uh, here. Um, I also want to say thank you to you, Crestwick Baptist Church. Thank you so much for your support over the years. You are a partner church. I think you know that. And um, we just really appreciate your involvement in uh, the life of the school. Uh, you've also you're also involved in our capital campaign for the seminary building. And uh, again, thank you for that. Um, we are, I think I reported to you last, before Christmas, that, that we are engaged in this capital campaign to raise, uh, to build a seminary building. And uh, that is uh, going very well. I think I told you back then that I'm the chair of the capital campaign. I'm the guy in charge of raising the funds, or at least chairing the committee that's raising the funds. So if any of you got a million dollars in your hip pocket, I wouldn't mind talking to you after the service. <laughs> but God is doing some absolutely amazing and wonderful things. Um, our project is $14 million. It's a big one, biggie. And uh, we're at about 12 and a half now. So we're uh, seeing some really good things, but we got a ways to go. And uh, yeah, but you are helping us out on that, and we very much appreciate it. Thank you uh, so much for that. Um, we've read some verses from Psalm 9, uh, some introductory verses uh, in our scripture reading earlier uh, in the service. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name. And we read the first 10 verses of Psalm 9. And in that psalm, we heard something about the justice of God and how he judges the nations righteously. But we need to know that Psalm 9 continues into Psalm 10. And we know that because there's no title in Psalm 10. Uh, it flows from one to the other. In that section of the book of Psalms, all the Psalms have titles. This one does not, which tells us that Psalm 9 flows into Psalm 10. Furthermore, uh, Psalms 9 and 10 are what's called an acrostic. In other words, it works through the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with subsequent letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Olive, Baith, Gimel, Daleth, and it works its way through with Olive and Baith and Gimel, etc., in Psalm 9, and then working its way through into Psalm 10. And it ends with the Hebrew letter tau um, in, uh, at the end of Psalm 10. So we know, that, we know that Psalms 9 and 10 belong together. So I had uh, Josiah read um, a little bit of the beginning of Psalm 9 to kind of give us a feel that we're in the context of worship and calling on God to uh, show his righteousness and to worship, for, worship him at that level and to glorify his name for his love and grace and, and righteousness. But as we read Psalm 10, the tone changes. And it's a powerful and frightening text. I'm going to read it to you. So if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to find it. Got it on your phone. I don't know whether it's going to be on the screen or what. But I'm going to read Psalm 10 to you. And you need to know this is a very, very difficult song. 
It's very harsh. It's very angry. And we can't pretend that it's anything but. But it's in the Bible. And it's not a psalm we read very often in our churches. We like the happy ones, don't we? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in the times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. All his thoughts, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your, lay, your, your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats and trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion, he in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, ha, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider the grief and take it in hand. The victims commit their lot themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer into account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. May God bless the reading of his word. And I'm suspicious that most of us have probably never heard that passage read publicly in church. But it's in the Bible. And it's just as inspired as Psalm 23. A difficult psalm. Hard to read. And it needs to be read with the kind of passion that I just read it with. So what's going on here? How does this fit into our worship? The Apostle Paul told us that we are to sing and to pray the Psalms. And he didn't say, but skip some of them because they're too hard. And a Psalm like this, and there are many others in the Psalter, Psalm 5, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, Psalm 137, Psalm 139. We're going to read part of Psalm 139 a little later on. We call these imprecatory Psalms or imprecations in the psalm. That's just a fancy word that means curse. Cursing psalms, or psalms that have curses in them. And David, the writer of this psalm, back to Psalm 9, and then flowing into Psalm 10, calls on God to curse and judge his enemies. And these psalms seem so at odds with Jesus, who said that we are to love our enemies. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, and he was abhorred by these psalms. And we respect C.S. Lewis for a lot of the things, but listen to what he said. 
In some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred, which strikes us in the face, is like the heat of a furnace mouth. In others, the same spirit ceases. Um, in others, the same spirit never ceases to be frightful, and it becomes almost comic in its naivete. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised, and we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it, or worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Now, I'm going to blame your pastor on this, for this, because when he heard that I was coming with the team today, he emailed me and said, um... Would you deal with imprecatory psalms? Thanks a lot. As I come among you as a guest, and I do something like this, and you guys are saying, where did this come from? And let's get this school out of our church, too. So it's all his fault. Uh, he took a course in Psalms with me, and we talked about this, and so he's asking his prof to, to talk to you. But, you know, I accepted the uh, invitation gladly because it's important, and we need to hear the entire word of God. And we need to hear things like this because right now, as was already prayed, the world's in a mess. And there's an evil man and his henchmen destroying people's lives. And we as a church need to speak. And we need to speak because, first of all, we're committed to justice and care for the, for the victims and the innocent. But furthermore, we have a voice. And God gave us that voice in the book of Psalms. And we need to use it and hear it. So, I'm afraid this is going to sound a bit more like a lecture than it is an actual sermon. But maybe that's appropriate because we're a Bible college and that's what we do at the Bible college. We lecture. But I trust that through it all as we talk about something that's really, really important to hear and difficult, that we will come to understand our God better, ourselves better, and our world better. And we will be taken into worship. So Psalm, chapter, Psalm 10. And in this psalm, we find the psalmist describing wicked people filled with pride, power, and mercilessness, and the psalmist calling on God to do something about it. Let me say that again. In this psalm, we find the psalmist describing wicked people filled with pride, power, and mercilessness, and calling on God to do something about it. Now, if we were to walk through the psalm, it breaks it down, it breaks down into four parts. We have an opening call and a question in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And you know, there are times I have heard people say, you should never ask God why. That is not a biblical truth. 
The Bible is full of why. And even Jesus on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So to ask God why is well within the context of what it is to engage in a spiritual journey with Christ. And so the psalmist begins with this plaintive cry, why, why? And whenever you see something repeated like that, it's there for emphasis. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And whether it has to do with, with Putin and his, his, the, the, the Russian power structures, and by the way, I am not speaking of the Russian church. I am not speaking of the Russian people. It is a particular man drunk with power, along with his henchmen and oligarchs who are, who are destroying innocent people. So that's who we're talking about here. And so we're, sta- we're, we're, we're it, to call on God and say, where are you in all of this? Is well within the context of what it is to engage in spiritual prayer. And then he goes through this litany of accusations down to verse 11. And I read those to you, okay? I'm not going to read through the text again, but he hunts down the weak and he, he, there is no room for God. He sneers at his enemies and he thinks that no one will ever call him account to account. His mouth is full of lies and threats. He lies and waits near the, near the villages. He murders the innocent. He, he lies and waits to catch the helpless. His victims are crushed. And he says to himself, God will never notice. And he covers his face and never sees. That is, he's, he is saying that God covers his face and never sees. And we all know that that's not true. So then the psalm moves into what we call an appeal for God to act. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Do something. Please, invade, stop. Do something miraculous. Bring about those peace talks that, that will actually do something. Stop this madman. And you see the trouble of the afflicted. You, you consider their grief and take it into your hand. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evil doer to account to his wickedness. And then the psalm ends with an affirmation of the kingship of God. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. God is king. And he will rule. You, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. You defend the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Dear God, even so, come quickly. All right. So how how does this work? How does this work in the context of our worship? I mean, we read verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, Most High. That's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 of Psalm 9 that flows into Psalm 10. So it is part of the worship life. It is part of the worship voice. But it is raw. It is confrontive. It's even angry. And we're not quite sure how to handle it. And I would say that we need to hear this and speak it in light of what we're seeing in in Ukraine. And this has been my prayer. I've been working on Psalm 10 now for a couple of weeks. Not in preparation for you and for other situations I'm in. And this is my prayer for Mr. Putin. 
My prayer is that God will invade and take him down. So how do we handle this? Well, here's the lecture part. And there are several thoughts that I could bring. Um, and by the way, um, I've written a chapter in a book on this topic. And uh, I've actually sent that chapter uh, through electronic, uh, through email to, to your pastor. And uh, if you would like to think further and see what else, some of the other things I've said about, about something like this, uh, you can contact uh, your pastor. He can get that to you in either hard copy or, or email it to you. Uh, you're more than welcome to have a look at that. So I've got about 15 minutes to talk about something that probably I would take about three hours in a class to deal with. So hang, hang on. Um, but there's four things that I think that we'll talk about just real briefly now. And the first one is this. This is the voice of worship for God's people now in the church. C.S. Lewis is wrong. And there are more and more interpreters. It's really interesting. I've been studying this issue now for 20, 25 years. And when I first began talking about this and thinking about it way back in, in the 80s, even, so even longer than that, most of the commentators were, were basically siding with C.S. Lewis. But it's really interesting in the last number of years where I'm seeing more and more fine scholars working in the book of Psalms, recognizing that these kinds of things are legitimate for the church and need to be heard in the church. Jesus Christ himself spoke imprecation. Woe to Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Woe to scribes and Pharisees, whited sepulchers. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, spoke these things. The apostle Paul spoke imprecation. The apostle of the new covenant. A lot of people say, okay, this is old covenant stuff, and, and so it's Old Testament stuff, so, so what's it doing in the New Testament? Well, it's interesting because the apostle Paul says this, out of Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached him, let him be eternally condemned. The old King James has accursed. And then he says in Galatians 1, and by the way, if he didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. And he repeats it. So the apostle Paul knew well what it is to speak imprecation in the life of the church. The apostle Peter quotes a psalm that's, that's, a, that's a judgment statement and he applies it to Judas in Acts chapter 1. So these, these psalms are not limited to the Old Testament or somehow fulfilled and ended in Christ and the cross. If they are, I gotta say this, that the apostle Paul and other apostles like Peter and John and Jude didn't get the memo. And I get no sense that these psalms are to be ignored or avoided in Paul's call for the church to sing and pray these psalms. So the first thing I think, the first thing I, I more than think, I'm convinced that these psalms are psalms of worship and need to be sung and prayed in the church. Second, they are always calling on God to act. This is really important. They are never personal vendettas. They have to do with the good of the nation or the people of God they were regularly spoken by a leader or representative of the community, but they are rooted in God's statement, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Deuteronomy 32, he says, God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And there's no sense 
that we take vengeance into our own hands. Yes, we defend ourselves, even as the Ukrainians are doing right now, but vengeance and justice belongs to God, and we speak these as an act of worship in that we are referring all of life back to God. It's a theocentric worldview. It's a God-centered way of thinking. We acknowledge verse 16 in Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations will perish from his land. He is king, and we refer them back to him. Second, third, these psalms are rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, most of you will remember that way back in Abraham's day, He gave a covenant to Abraham, and in that covenant, he said, I will bless those that bless you and, second line, curse them that curse you. Sometimes we forget about that second line. And what these Psalms are doing is simply calling on God to be true to his covenant promise. They are rooted in the the Abrahamic covenant, and yes, they were spoken to Abraham and his family and descendants. They were then fully and fully and realized in the nation of Israel, and they became the foundation for Israel's faith. But today, we are the church as the seed and descendants of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. The Apostle Paul wrote this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? Abrahamic promise. So, and I could, by the way, I could read several other passages from Romans and Galatians. So the church today inherits the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the promise to bless those that bless and curse those that curse are still the voice and the promise to the church. We are simply invoking the Abrahamic covenant. How the nation, how the, the, how the, the, the nation of modern Israel fits into this today Some of you are asking that, I know. You're thinking in your mind, what's he do with the nation of modern Israel today? That's a topic for another day. I can't get into that. And and just to let you know, I am not an advocate of replacement theology. Some of you have absolutely no idea what I just said there. Others of you do. Okay? And I'm just putting my cards on the table here. But it's an important point. This whole business of I will bless those that bless and curse those that curse. And we need to understand that these imprecatory psalms or these cursed psalms go back to that moment. And then we are called to love our enemies. And this is the one that's always raised, and I get it. I have read Matthew 5, 44, which says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? I do read the New Testament as well as the Old, just in case you're wondering. I know the truth, I know that truth well. So how does it fit? And yes, it's a conundrum. And even seemingly a contradiction. But here's how I think we handle it. These imprecations are leveled against movements 
institutions and people that lead them that are opposed to the work of God in the church and world. And by the way, the work of God includes humanitarian efforts and inhumanity to other human beings. They are not leveled specifically at individual individuals per se. For example, and here's an example that I think works. And I hope this is not offensive, but, but we've got to talk about evil in the world. For example, when I think about the porn industry, when I think about the child sex abuse industry, all that horrific stuff that is so anti-God, anti-humanity, anti-church, anti-Christian, I pray to God that he will curse that movement that institution, that whatever that is, and bring it down. People, children, women, men are being horrifically hurt, abused. And I pray to God that God brings that down. And he will bring his wrath and judgment to bear on this horrible industry. But, if the owner of the local porn shop was to walk into this church, I would reach out my hand and say, in the name of Christ, I love you. You are my enemy in the way that you are conducting your life and what you represent. But I will voice my love in Christ to you. But what you represent, I hate. And by the way, hate is a legitimate word. I'm going to show you that in a minute. And I pray to God that he takes what you represent down. And if you go with it, so be it. I give it back to God. And I pray it against the movement, the institution. I reach out in love to the individual but I pray the imprecation against what he represents. I love my enemy, but I pray God's curse and judgment on what he or she represents. And I also believe that we need to pronounce it uh, imprecation, as I said, against those who are engaged in injustice against humanity. God loves humanity. John 3:16, "For God so loved the world." But when there is inhumanity to other human beings, God speaks. And way back in, 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 in Amos, look, 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 at, look at what God says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael, which is the, uh, the, the king of Damascus. I will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gates of, gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aven, the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. And that's just the first of seven in a row. For three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions and four. I will not revoke my punishment. And so God is not just interested in 
abuse against the church, but he's interested in abuse against humanity. And in Ukraine right now, crimes against humanity are happening every day. Children, women, men, grandmothers, babies, orphans are killed, wounded. Refugees are fleeing for their lives and getting bombed while they're doing it. Hospitals and homes are mercilessly attacked. Schools, calls for peace and even a ceasefire are falling on deaf ears. A man and his government, a movement, an institution drunk with power, wealth, pride, and aspirations for empire in, are invading a sovereign nation and killing and exile, exiling people who do not deserve this. And so today, as I said before, I read Psalm 10 against Mr. Putin and his henchmen that are committing crime after crime against humanity in Ukraine. But if Mr. Putin was to walk into this church this morning, I would reach out my hand and say, even though you are my enemy, in Christ, I love you. However, I hate what you're doing. And what you represent as the people, as the leader of this criminal action, and I call on God to take you down, and if in the process your wife becomes a widow and your children become orphans, Psalm 109, so be it. I know you probably didn't come here today to hear this, and for which I apologize, but blame your pastor. <laughs> but it's important, folks. It is really important. We need to hear this. And I guess of all people, I'm perhaps the person to speak. I don't know. I've been working in this stuff for 20, 25, almost 30 years now. And I think I have a little bit of credibility with you guys from being here a little bit before Christmas. So and I hope you know my heart. But the church needs to speak and pray. The leaders in the church need to speak and pray. And God has given us a voice, a voice from Scripture, and we need not be afraid to use that voice. Eugene Peterson writes... Psalm prayer also enters into the way things are, but finds that the way things are are pretty bad. Evil is encountered. Wickedness is confronted. This prayer quickens the pulse and shoots the adrenaline into the bloodstream. The people who practice this prayer get excited. They yell and gesture. Prayer is combat. I love that line. Yes, we hear we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But we call on our leaders to pray for God to act against those people as leaders and institutions of movements that are anti-God, anti-humanity, anti-anything that is good and right in this. Well, this is a brief and introductory look at how to deal with this material in our Bibles. And as I said, uh, if you'd like to explore a bit more, you can talk to your pastor about that. So just to wind this thing up, and I just want to conclude with four things. One, what do we learn about God? We learn about that God cares about his people. He cares about the marginalized, the victimized, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the one being treated in inhumane and criminal ways, whether in the church or in the world at large. We learn that God hates injustice, and we can call on him to bring justice. And we learn that while God is a God of love, peace, and compassion, he is also a God of holiness, justice, and we worship him as such. Where's the good news here? Is there good news? Amazing good news. First of all, we're welcome into the throne room. This is a prayer that is in our Bibles that we can pray. I don't know about you, but I need a prayer like this right now. What do we do with this? Is it worship? Is, it the kind, is this kind of voice legitimate? Are these songs for the church? And the answers are resounding yes. They're in our Bibles. They're God-breathed. 
It's also good news for the marginalized, abused, the, the victimized. The God of Christianity cares. We invite all the world to be part of our faith because this is the kind of God that we worship in Jesus Christ. There's one other point here that's good news. And that is there's a day coming when all rights, all wrongs will be righted. The world, God will set the world to rights. Isaiah said, God will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We hear the Apostle John's words about the coming new heavens and new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Now the dwelling of God is with humankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Oh, dear God. Oh, dear Jesus, come quickly. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Have you seen those pictures? I still remember that kid, that one kid, I don't know, 8, 10 years old, walking along, dragging, I think, some kind of knapsack or maybe the toy, I can't remember. And he's sitting, he's walking along, scuffing his feet on a gravel road, crying his eyes out. I, I, I had to turn, I couldn't look at it. I had to turn the TV off. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a vision that haunts me. Just yesterday, the day before, I had this picture of a, an older woman covered in blood, weeping on the ground. There's a day coming God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And so in these psalms, we find good news because they do anticipate that day, which is still yet. How do we need to think differently? I don't know about you, but when I came across these things and started working on them, it shifted my worldview. It certainly shifted my perspective on God. And we are free to crash the gates with this kind of prayer. And let's not blunt our, blunt our calls for God to act in justice and mercy and prayer in our nation. How should we respond? In a recent workshop I did on this topic, I suggested five actions. One, read all the Psalms. All of them and all of them. Don't skip the verses we don't like. They're all in the Bible, and they're all God-breathed. Second, teach on the diversity of the Psalms. We have lament. We have praise. We have thanksgiving. We have trust. We also have imprecation. Name publicly the horrors of our world. Name them. Why can't the church talk about the horrors of the world and speak Christ and the gospel into those horrors? Let's stop being afraid. Name them in the church. Be informed and learn to pray these these imprecations. Learn how to do it. Become a church that prays all of the prayers that are found in Scripture. And then fifth, act in mercy and justice, especially towards those who are being victimized by evil and evil powers. Nancy, the class of Walford, who's been part of writing one of the best commentaries on the Psalms, along with Beth Tanner and Rolf Jacobson, writes this. Is such language permissible in the context of the biblical text? The overwhelming consensus seems to be, yes, by all means, yes. 
People are accused unjustly. Goodness is sometimes rewarded with bad. Justice is not always served. How should the people of God respond? With silence? With indifference? With, with long-suffering? Yes, sometimes. Yet at other times, God calls on his people to speak out, to protest, and to say, this is not right. Let me read a couple last verses of Psalm 139. Beautiful, beautiful psalm talking about the intimacy that God has in our lives where we pray that God, where we would announce with great joy that he knows our hearts intimately, knows our lives intimately. And and, uh, he, he concludes the psalm by saying, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And then he goes into this little section that unfortunately, in most scripture readings, we skip. If only God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who rise up in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And yes, See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God bless you all.